0: Good morning, everybody. So let me get the Bible opened up here. So I don't know if you would have seen this a while back. On social media, there was a video going around of two teenagers, and they were given a task. It was a really simple task. It was a task to dial a number. To dial a number into a phone. And you're sending me now, that's not a task. That is simple. That is easy. But the phone that they were given was this. It was... An old school dial-up phone. Look, let's have a moment of honesty. Is there anybody in the room who still has a dial-up phone? (laughs) There we go. The rector still has. Really? There we go. You can't contact them on it though, so in case you're trying to ring them. But they were given this task, and it was hilarious the way they went about it. They were given the phone, and they looked at it, and they were sitting, you know, there was a lead coming out that obviously connected to, to whatever... the the, the aerial was and they were thinking is this the charger surely it must be fully charged they were trying to work out where's the FaceTime option what's going on here they didn't didn't know how to punch in text They, they were so confused and it took them something like 15 minutes to actually dial this number I wanted to show you the video but we didn't have 15 minutes to go through the whole thing but it was funny how just time moves on doesn't it There's always something new and these young people didn't have a clue how this technology worked because time just keeps going on and things just keep becoming new. One day we have the best, most up-to-date piece of technology, then it's only a matter of months or maybe a matter of years that actually the, the, the thing that we have that was all sparkly and new at one point, it's old, it's dated. And you never really get that sense of fulfillment. It never lasts. I don't know if you've ever got like a a new iPhone and you get that feeling of like, this is class. It does all this. It has all the gadgets. And then three weeks later, they release the new one again. And all of a sudden, you've got this hunger to have the next level up. So that sense of fulfillment, it never stays. Now this morning, we're going to look at, continue to look at the book of John. And we're going to be in chapter 15 where Jesus says this incredible statement. I am the true vine. Now, what I believe Jesus wants to say this morning, God wants to say this morning through this passage is that actually Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. So we're gonna read from chapter 15 in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, please open them with me or if you've got them on your phone, flick through as well, but the words will be up on the screen. I am the true vine, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now this is a pretty well-known passage. If you have been around church for, for any sort of length of time, you may have heard this phrase that I am the true vine. Or even if you haven't been around church, you might even have just seen a, a little fridge magnet on your granny's fridge that said something like, I am the true vine. But what I want to do this morning is that I want to look at a little bit of the context in the, the scriptural context and the cultural context and show you that actually this passage and this statement of Jesus that I am the true vine it bears so much more weight than a fridge magnet. So let's start just by looking at a little bit of the scriptural context. So where do we see this theme of vines and vineyards throughout the Bible? Well, Here in this passage in the book of John, basically what's happened is in chapter 12, Jesus has arrived and has been celebrated. And in chapter 13, we see what was called the last supper where Jesus gathered together with his disciples, which we heard about last week. And they broke the bread and they drank the wine. Then from that moment up until John chapter 18, these are literally like Jesus' last words. These are his last words because he knows what is set before him. He knows where he is going. So the, 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 the words that we read in, in, in these chapters, these are his, like his closing words to his followers before he goes to the cross. So by the very nature of when Jesus is saying these words, we know actually that they are important. So why on earth is Jesus in this last sorry, last moment, why is he saying, I'm the true vine? Why is he talking about a vine here? It's not the sort of thing you'd expect Jesus to go on and talk about in his last moments. Like, Even if you are really into your gardening and you love talking about flowers and vines or whatever it may be, it's still not the sort of thing that you would expect to hear someone talk about in their closing words or in their last few moments on earth. Well, if we were to understand anything really about ancient Israel, we'll know that actually that in ancient Israel, there were vines everywhere. Israel was a city, but it wasn't like a city that we see today. It wasn't like London or New York. It was more of like an agricultural city. So people, they would have flocked in from the farmland around, and they would have come in from the vineyards into the city. And as they came in, they even would have seen vines draped over the buildings as they walked past as well. But more significantly, if these followers, if the ones who were listening to Jesus, if they were raised as good Jews and if they knew the scriptures, they would have heard Old Testament prophets talking about God as a gardener and as a vine dresser, And they would have heard these prophets talking about God's people as a vineyard. So here's a couple of examples. Isaiah 27, it says this in verse two, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Or there's Jeremiah chapter two where it says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Or Hosea chapter 10, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. So the people would have been familiar with this concept of God like a gardener, who planted his vineyard, and the people like a vine. But one of the most famous passages for the people in this moment would have been Isaiah chapter five. Now anybody listening to Jesus in this moment would have been familiar, if they'd grown up in Jewish culture, they would have been familiar with this passage in Isaiah chapter five. Now I wanna read this to you, it says this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, if we jump to verse 7, Isaiah then defines what's actually happening here and he says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty. Is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in? He looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. So that doesn't look like a great picture. So when the disciples hear Jesus call himself the true vine, there might have been a few raised eyebrows. If they'd known this passage, if they'd even been familiar with this passage, there might have been a few raised eyebrows. But 22 chapters later in the book of Isaiah, this theme of the vine, almost, there's, a, there's, a, there's a message of hope that just jumps right in. 22 chapters later then it says, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole earth. With fruit, So the disciples would have been left in some confusion in and around that time. What, what does that mean? You know, is the vineyard bad and corrupt? Does it need to be destroyed? Is it not producing fruit? Or is it going to take root and blossom and produce much fruit? So that's some of the scriptural context that Jesus was speaking into and that they might have been aware of at the time but I wanna take a moment just to have a little think about the cultural context of the time as well when Jesus spoke and said, I am the true vine. So to do that, let's jump in and put ourselves in the moment where Jesus is speaking, okay? So Jesus has just had his last supper with the disciples, his closest friends. He knows what lies ahead of him, and now he gets up and he's walking through the city out towards the Mount of Olives where he loves to pray, Now you need to give me a little bit of preacher's license here, okay, but you can imagine that as he's walking through the city that there are vines that are just draped over the buildings. And he's walking and he's saying these words, I am the true vine. Or it's possible that they're actually walking past the temple itself as that would have been one of the routes to get out of the city, They also would have been in and around the temple during this time because the Passover was happening then. So they would have been familiar with the temple at this time as well. And what they would have seen was this incredible vine that hung over the entrance to the temple. And this vine was called the golden vine, okay? It sat at the entrance of the temple. Now, there was a biblical scholar called Lynn Rittmeyer who says this. He said, the golden vine was the most remarkable in all the temple precincts. A golden vine stood over the entrance to the sanctuary, trained over a post. And whosoever gave a leaf or a berry or a cluster as a free will offering, he brought it, and the priests hung it thereon. This vine was so famous that even Tacitus wrote about it. But just imagine, so Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples, he's walking to go pray to the Mount of Olives, he walks past the temple and he stops. And he points at the entrance where there's this huge vine draped over the post that was supposed to represent this intimate relationship with God and his people. Now remember, you would come to the temple to do business with God. You came to the temple to make sacrifices with God, sacrifices to God. You came to the temple to be in the presence of God. The temple was called a house of prayer. Now imagine Jesus stands before the temple and and he says, that vine that was meant to to, to keep you focused on your intimate relationship with God, it's it's been spoiled. The people of Israel have not been able to keep up their end of the deal. So I have come in its place. I am the vine and I will produce the fruit that God has asked for. You no longer go to that place to find life, but instead you come to me to find life. Now you've got to grasp the culturally, how radical that kind of chat would have been in that day. The temple was the very center. It was like the epicenter of life in that time. The calendar was based around the temple. The laws were based around the temple. The community, all of life, was around this hub of the temple. Like we don't really have that anymore in our culture or in our society. But back then, everything revolved around the temple. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, it would have struck a chord with these people. It was heavy stuff. It was kind of stop you in your tracks kind of stuff. And you can imagine the disciples stopping and thinking in their minds like, what do you mean that you're the true vine? Are you saying that you're the true temple? Are you saying that you are where we find life? Well, Jesus then goes on to unpack a little bit about what it means to find life in him. And he uses this word, abide, Now, it depends what translation you are reading. Some say abide, some say remain. But 11 times in those first 16 verses, we see this word remain or abide. So question for us is then, what does that actually look like? What does that look like to remain or abide in Jesus? Well, I wanna suggest that actually Jesus answers that question for us in the previous chapter, in chapter 14, where he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home in them. Now, this idea of love, we've got lots of ideas of love nowadays, but I think what that really means is that anyone who is like all in for Jesus, anyone who is committed to him, committed to following him, anyone who adores him, then they're given this incredible promise that the Father and Jesus will come and make their home in in him so to abide in Jesus or remain in Jesus is to be in love with him to be committed to following him to adore him so a question that I want to ask us this morning is I guess just to see if for a personal reflection question to see if we are abiding in Jesus is like what is it that you adore about Jesus right now like, what is it that you love about Jesus right now? And you can come back to me and say, well, I love that Jesus saved me from my sins 20 years ago whenever I became a Christian. And that would be great. That would be a great testimony. But I mean more like more recently, like in, in this season, in this last couple of months, whatever, what is it that you adore or love about Jesus? Do you love that he's a teacher? That he's, that he's faithful, that that he corrects us, that he speaks to us through his word, that whatever it may be, what is it that you love about him? And look, I don't say this to make anybody feel bad, but I say it simply because if we're not sure, then maybe that's a little invitation actually right now this morning for us to come a little closer to Jesus. And it doesn't matter where you are on that scale, whether you say, like, I know exactly what it is that I adore about Jesus this day right now, or maybe you're sitting thinking, well, I can't really work that out right now. It doesn't matter where you all are on that scale. Look, Paul said to the church in Ephesus, I pray that you will know the love of God even more so we can always come a little closer to Jesus. We can always come a little closer. So, as we adore Jesus, And we remain in Him and abide in Him. We're given that promise that the Father will come and make His home in us. And as a natural result of this here, we're gonna produce just fruit in our life. And it's by this fruit that others around us will see Jesus at work in our lives. You know what, like this is just a natural result of being connected to Jesus. Like think about this idea, this, this imagery of fruit, An an apple tree doesn't try and produce apples. Or or an orange tree doesn't try and produce oranges. That happens as a natural result of the tree being a healthy tree. If the tree is connected to the right source, if it's connected to the right light and the right soil and it's getting the right water, a natural result is it produces fruit. So if you were to read this passage and you were to say to yourself, jeepers, I've got to try and become a bit more loving, I've got to start trying to become a bit more full of joy or full of peace or whatever it may be. Well, look, the good news this morning is you don't need to keep trying to do that. What you need to do is just come closer to Jesus to abide in him. And I think it's helpful that we realize this this morning. Fruit is always connected to the root. Fruit is always connected to the root. So if you're seeing some unhealthy things in your life, like, if you're producing some bad fruit, then let's ask the question, like, what is the root that you're connected to? Like, if you're connected to, to busyness or, or hurry or, or comparison or, or worry, then there's a good chance that you're going to see some fruit in your life that maybe looks a little bit more like, like, like greed or like pride or like envy or, or, or selfishness or, or whatever it may be. One of the biggest critiques that God gives of his people in the Old Testament is found in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the people of God had neglected the source of living water and they'd gone their own way. They'd dug their own sisters and decided to exchange this source of living water for like a source of their own that produced this this muddy, murky water that was giving them no fruit. Like, why would they do that? They thought they knew better. But I guess that's exactly what we see in our culture a little bit, isn't it? It's certainly what I think we see in our culture anyway. Our secular culture has kind of gone down that road where it wants the water, it wants fruit, it wants happiness, it wants the perfect life, but it's dug its own cisterns. Instead of going for the source of living water, it's gone for this, this source of, of pleasure, Whatever feels good, go for it. Whatever, whatever looks good, go for it. If other people are doing it, then go for it. But actually the fruit that we're seeing in our secular culture nowadays looks a lot more like, like fear or lack of meaning or insane levels of stress or utter confusion on, on, on identity and, and a lack of sense of belonging. You know, I guess we could kind of stop here this morning and and, and finish with that kind of theme and say, look, if you're connected to Jesus, you're gonna produce good fruit, but if you're not connected to Jesus, you're gonna produce bad fruit. But the passage goes a step further. The passage goes a step further in verse six, and it says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, that might not sit nice. That might even offend a little bit, but it's, it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying here. If we're not rooted in Christ, if we are not connected in him, then we can only expect to spend eternity not connected to him, to spend eternity separated from him. It's a picture that's very clear from Jesus of being cast away of, of destruction. But look, there is, there is hope and there is a message for today in this. And it's found, I really believe this is a message just so specific for our generation, for our culture today. And it's found in verse 11. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying, like, here's why I am telling you this. Here's why this all this chat of being the true vine, of being the fulfillment, here's why it is so important. And in verse 11 it says so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And what is this joy, Will? It's the joy of sins forgiven. It's the joy of the price of our sins being paid for us. It's the joy of the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the joy of everlasting life spent with him. I mean, like if there was ever a message for a time, for, for our time, for our era. It's gotta be this. Like the, the, the Western world has, it's all about the pursuit of happiness. This relentless search for joy. It wants the perfect world. It wants utopia. It wants the kingdom, but it doesn't want the king. We've mistaken joy for pleasure. But Jesus says this. He says, "Look, listen up. I am the answer. In me, there is complete joy. There is everlasting joy. Whatever it is that you find pleasure in right now, it's gonna run dry pretty soon. But in me, there is complete joy. The old ways weren't working. The temple wasn't working. The people had corrupted it. Instead, Jesus came. Our ways don't work. Our own ways aren't working. But Jesus has come. He is the true vine, the true temple, the true place where we find fulfillment, the true source that offers everlasting life that produces good fruit in our lives. Abide in him, remain in him, adore him, and fall deeply, deeply in love with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, your word that speaks truth and life. Father, I pray this morning that you will call us closer to you. Father, that we would be connected to you. Lord, would you reveal just the fruit in our lives, Father. Reveal areas that you want us just to to dig up, Lord, and become connected to you, be it that in work or in family or in relationships or in, in private, whatever it may be, Father, I pray that we would be rooted and anchored in Jesus. Lord, I pray that in a culture that is searching for pleasure, in a culture that wants the kingdom but doesn't want the king, Lord, I pray that we would just abide in you that we would fall deeply, deeply in love with you, Jesus. We ask this in your holy, holy name.